late start. Luke, could you uh, let there be light back there? If you like the darkness more than the light, I'm just saying. <clears throat> we are uh, doing the third session of our theological identity today. So <clears throat> if you recall over the last two weeks, uh, we've been trying to specify kind of what aspects of our theological DNA uh, here at Risen King Church, maybe I'd say set us apart, that kind of makes it sound arrogant, just like dis- our distinctions, theological distinctions from us and some other churches. Not every other church, and we're not trying to be unique. Uh, we're just trying to be faithful to what we believe is accurate, and um, as I hope every church would say and do, right? I get to be like, well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. Uh, truth matters. God's word matters. And we want to, uh, while we don't require uh, absolute conformity on the, the issues that we've been talking about, especially last week with the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism or the canons of Dort or whatever you want to tell, tell, call them, uh, TULIP, uh, or in regard to what we'll cover today, uh, we do hold them uniformly uh, without reservation as an eldership. And it is what we teach. So it's not the only thing that we talk about, but it is what we teach is what our practice is. And so uh, the first week we, we talked about why we use these solas uh, to emphasize those things. Last week, those doctrines of grace uh, for how it is, according to Scripture, that salvation is all of God's grace only through faith in Jesus Christ exclusively to the glory of God, and how we understand that using um, those historical points, uh, reformed, uh, reformed understanding of salvation. Um, today, another important part of our theological identity is that we are Baptists, or that we are Baptistic in our theology and church practice. And this distinguishes us from other Reformed churches or other denominations uh, like Presbyterians, that we would share a lot of um, Reformed doctrine with, uh, except on this one point, which is why we aren't a Presbyterian church and we, we can't be a Presbyterian church. Uh, this is a point of distinction. And so the two significant points that I want to make about our identity as Baptists or the Baptistic elements of our theology as a church uh, is that baptism by immersion for believers only, and then alongside of that is that church membership is also for believers only. Uh, Those are two uh, very sharp distinctions that we would have, especially thinking in contrast to like Presbyterian churches. Uh, So we want to take those points in turn. Uh, First, that baptism is for believers only, and and even when we say baptism, uh, the, the word means to, to dunk or to submerge or to immerse. It always means that. It, it meant it in the Old Testament when you have the Septuagint. It means it in the New Testament. Uh, and even if it doesn't mean like a, a full um, underneath the water because R.C. Sproul found this one text where they, they baptizo the dove in its own blood and the, the volume of the blood in a dove, you cannot fully immerse it into that. Be like, all right, granted. Uh, but you didn't take the blood and sprinkle it. You put the dove down into the sacrificial blood because it's a motion, right? It's a submersion that's happening. That's what the word means. Uh, So when I say baptism is for believers only, I'm also assuming the case for immersion. Uh, That's just not the emphasis that I want to make today. But really, if you're like, yeah, it's it's immersion only, so let's dunk babies. Like, uh, nobody really makes that, that case. So that's why I want to emphasize this baptism is for believers only. I'm getting feedback on this 
a little bit as well. Um, this is the following statement from our Elder Affirmation of Faith, which is a publicly available document. It's on our website. If you can't find it, um, catch me or message me. I'll point that out to you. It's under that What We Believe section of our website. It says this, uh, Article 13 on Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to show forth our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, and that it is a prerequisite to the privileges of membership in the local church. We believe that the Lord's Supper is a sacred commemorative meal in which believers participate by partaking of unleavened bread and wine in order to remember and show forth his dying love until his return, preceded always by solemn self-examination. Uh, we, we did a, a series on Sunday mornings back uh, last January, I think it was, right before we started Genesis, of uh, what do we believe about the sacraments? What do we believe about baptism? What do we believe about the Lord's Supper? And so there's elements of this that are summarized by that. If you want kind of a fuller version of those individual things, uh, you can look those sermons up on our website. The Lord's Table, I think I did sacraments and baptism, and then my friend uh, Jared Belcher, pastor at Williamson First Baptist, came to do the Lord's Supper and just did an excellent job emphasizing those things. Uh, we do use um, sacrament language, and for some, that word itself is a little bit off-putting, but a, a sacrament, also called an ordinance, uh, really emphasizing, talking about the same things, but emphasizing two different aspects of it. Uh, what they are is an outward expression of an inward reality, or an outward or a, a physical expression of a spiritual reality. And so you, you have to keep in mind what that spiritual reality is in order to be able to wed it properly with the physical reality. Uh, what, sacraments are, are known as signs and seals, and when I teach on this in our sacraments class for those who are interested in baptism, I always say that, that as, a, as a sign, a sacrament is pointing to something. It's pointing to a, a, a theological event in the work of Christ and its effect on us. It's, it's drawing our attention to something. That's a sign points. And then as a seal, I always say signs point, seals promise. Now, that's what I try to really drive into to those that are going through our uh, sacraments class for baptism. And as a, as, as a seal, right, like a signet ring type wax impression that a, that a king or an emperor would put onto a document, uh, with his binding authority, this is a true statement. If it, was a, if it was a warrant for arrest or execution, then the full authority of the king is behind or guaranteeing that warrant for execution. If it's a statement of pardon sealed by the ring of the king that only he had. It wasn't something that was duplicated. I think actually if you duplicated it, that was on pain of death because you only duplicate it to forge, uh, to lie in the name of the king, which would have been a capital crime in these different empires. And so a seal, as a seal given by God to his people, there's a guarantee of the spiritual realities that are communicated by those signs. Uh, to some, the word sacrament itself is a little bit off-putting because many associate it only with Roman Catholicism. Uh, that's not necessary. Kind of like we have catechism readings and people are like, oh, I thought only Catholics catechized. Uh, false. <laughs> it's not only Roman Catholics. Like, let's make uh, catechisms Protestant again, like they have, always have been. Um, just a, a teaching method. So the, the Roman Catholics would take that sign and seal, the physical sign, 
uh, and they would cause it to, to dominate the spiritual reality as if the, the sign itself, the, the water of baptism or the bread or the cup at the table uh, are the spiritual reality. Not something that points to a spiritual reality, but, but is itself the spiritual reality. So there's a difference between thinking that water cleanses you from your sin and thinking of water as something that points you to the fact that God has cleansed you from your sin. Do you see the difference between that? So the Roman Catholicism, Catholicism would say, yeah, the waters of baptism is the, the means, of, the mode of justification. You, that water cleanses you actually from your sin. It is the moment of justification. And we'd be like, that's not biblical, right? No, but it is pointing to the fact that you have been cleansed from your sin, right? So we have to keep those two things together. Uh, because, though, they would be like, oh, that is justification, and, and by the rote doing of them, simply by the work, without knowledge, uh, without really faith, other than faith becoming a work, uh, none of those things are necessary. It happens automatically, that's kind of Roman Catholic doctrine. It just works. It, it works by the doing of it. Like, so uh, that's how they would say, well, that's how we get grace. Like God just has it available, and then we go take grace. We take grace by the doing of the sacraments. And that's not, that's not what we would believe. So many would say, well, well, let's just drop sacramental language and just use ordinance. It just becomes uh, something that Jesus commanded us to do. Um, life is full of uh, reactions and overreactions, isn't it? Uh, pendulum overswings. And so what I think has happened in the, uh, really in the churches that I grew up in, and, and maybe for many of you as well, uh, we see the abuses of Roman Catholicism of just kind of like, oh, grace is there to just for the taking. And it happens just by doing the work, whether you kind of know it or not, this automatic aspect. And you're like, well, that's not how God works. And you're right, that's not how God works. And so then what I think has happened is this huge overreaction to where, like, you know what? Actually, we're going to rip all the grace out of it. This is only obedience. You eat because he said you should eat. You drink because he said you should drink. You get dunked because he said you should get dunked. End of story. That's it. And it's just like, I believe that's an overreaction. As if there's no, almost as if there's nothing other than just the check mark of obedience for us to participate in the sacraments. That's an overreaction. There is grace for us received by God, not taken, but received from God for his people. It's just not what we could call justifying grace. It's not salvific. You are not justified by baptism. Uh, you are not saved by participating in the table. But that doesn't mean that you aren't benefited by baptism, by your own or by watching someone else's. It doesn't mean that you're not, you don't benefit uh, every time that we come to the table, that it's not a means of God's uh, transforming or sanctifying grace available for his people through faith in Christ like everything that we have uh, in these things. So yes, it is, they are commanded, uh, but... Uh, you know, take your vitamins. <laughs> there's, a, there's a benefit uh, when a parent says that, right? Uh, but the more that you understand how those things work, right, knowledge and faith are not enemies. The more that we know about who Christ is and what he has done for us and how his benefits come to us, uh, the better we receive those things. 
Uh, it's trying to, you know, just cover these physical to spiritual type connections. Um, okay, I'm just trying to catch up with my, my notes where I'm at here because uh, we had a lot, of, a lot to cover. Uh, but just because the physical waters of baptism do not actually cleanse us from sin, they don't, or unite us to Christ, the water doesn't do that. It does not mean that Christ is absent from our baptisms. Because it is something commanded from him to his church uh, that he is a part of. Right? We recognize that, that God, uh, through Christ by his spirit, everything that God does is Trinitarian. Um, the Father, uh, and then uh, has sent the spirit, which is the spirit of Christ. Right? So, uh, we have grace from the Father through the Son that comes into our lives by the Holy Spirit. So God is present in our gatherings, not just because he's omnipresent, uh, but because we are coming together as his people through faith in Christ, by his Holy Spirit, that he is present in each element of that, hearing our singing, right? Not only hearing us speak his word, but teaching us by his Spirit through his word, right? He is, if we're faithful to his word, he is the one preaching, and applying the text to us. Those, those commands aren't coming just from my mouth. If it's what the text is saying, then it's the Spirit driving those things into the hearts of God's people. And the same thing is true regarding baptism and the Lord's Supper, that Christ is not physically present, right? I don't, I don't get possessed and turn into Jesus when I baptize somebody, right? And, and uh, I don't turn into Jesus when I'm serving the elements, and the elements don't turn into Jesus either, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is absent. He is not physically present on earth, but he is spiritually present in the lives and the worship of his people. So that's why we call it the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table. Because he is the one who said, come, take, eat. Come, drink. Drink of me. Eat of me. Right? To those type of things. And that, I love talking about the Lord's Supper because I think we miss a lot of what's in there. But this is supposed to be about baptism. But... Uh, God is using these two ordained or commanded means to strengthen and encourage the faith of his people. It's a sign pointing to something that's taken place, and it's a promise from God of those spiritual realities to those who are the recipients of it. Outward expressions of inward realities. And in other words, in order for that to be accurate, we need to admit, we need to understand that the outward expression, if it doesn't produce the inward reality, the outward expression follows the inward reality. You're not saying this is something that I hope to happen. You're saying this is something that has happened. You're expressing physically what has taken place spiritually, not what you hope to have take place. First, something happens, and then it is expressed outwardly in the sacraments. Therefore, saving faith, participating in the blood of Christ, the body of Christ, his death is my death at the table, I need to embrace that by faith before I express it outwardly. And if the waters of baptism are speaking as they are about cleansing from sin and union with Christ and adoption into his family, then those things need to be true before I express them in the waters of baptism. I need to be cleansed from my sin in order to show forth the cleansing of my sin. 
I need to be united to Christ in order to show forth the union with Christ. And I need to be adopted into his family in order to show forth the adoption into his family. Not express those things and then look forward to hopefully that they will take place. So they don't happen automatically. I'm not cleansed, united, or adopted in the waters of baptism. But I also don't uh, express those hopefully, hopefully that will happen. No, I by faith come to Christ and then express what has taken place, just like the table. I have eaten of Christ. I have drank of his blood. He has become life, food and life for me spiritually. Therefore, I express that in obedience as a means of receiving the grace that he has at the table. Truths regarding baptism. I've got three of them. Uh, first, that baptism is the most basic command of Christ for his church. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's the first time. Would you stop? Not you. That's weird on the recording. My watch keeps trying to help me. I'm not sure if series of Baptists or not. I thought that was a funny joke. In the Gospels, we see baptism first in the baptism of John. And then we see Jesus transform that after his resurrection. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Post-death on the cross, post-resurrection, just before his ascension, this great commission text. Starting at verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing who? The disciples, disciples of all nations, baptizing the disciples of all those, in all those nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, in or into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them who? The disciples, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have to find where's the text where baptism is commanded. That's a sacrament is a, is a commandment. It is an ordinance, something that Jesus has ordained for his people. Where? Well, here. This is something that you are to be doing. This is a sign and seal. This is a sacrament that I am commanding and giving at the same time. You, you obediently receive because it does wed those two things together. And then we see in the book of Acts, we see them immediately uh, obeying this command. As early as Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches his famous sermon at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit moves in the hearts of his hearers, and they ask, how should they respond? And Peter says, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. And this is exactly what takes place in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then those souls continued to gather together, about 3,000 in number, to receive the word, to eat and live together, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. All right, make disciples through the proclamation of the word, okay? Check. Baptizing them, check teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And that's what we see in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then this continues to happen throughout Acts. We say like the Acts of the, the apostles, really it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the word 
from the mouth of the apostles and others. It just, that's a little bit too long of a title for a book. But that's what's happening. The apostles go forth in obedience, proclaiming the word. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of that, right? Comes behind it, and all of a sudden, just things start to explode. Everywhere that the word goes, the Spirit is working. And every time that the Spirit works and they respond in faith, they then are baptized. And it never breaks that pattern. You never see baptism preceding someone's faith. Right? Now, it is joined to those expressions of faith. That's how he can say, repent and be baptized. And then it says, those who received his word were baptized. Because repentance and faith right, are two sides of the same coin. How we respond to the gospel, what the Holy Spirit works in us. And then uh, it, is, it is expressed publicly in a way that made sense to them that had already been seen in the, the work of John. Right? Express your repentance. Well, we're going to, then the Pharisees, the ones who were in need of the most repentance, come to be baptized. And John says, what are you doing here? Repent first. Then you can come and express that repentance. But they could have been like, well, no, 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 I, I am repenting. I want to repent in that water. And John's like, that's not how it works. So it's a most basic command of Christ for his church Uh, always following this pattern, like in Acts chapter 8, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, the word is present, the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed, he believes, and then he is baptized. And again, I would say it never breaks that pattern, and there's no other pattern present for that. Throughout the book of Acts, every time that baptism is introduced, it's always following the proclamation of the word, received by faith because of the work of the Holy Spirit, in those people's lives, and it's then expressed in baptism. So we could say that baptism is the first official act, publicly official act uh, of obedience for a Christian. I mean, faith itself is an act of obedience, so is repentance, right? Believe, uh, that's an imperative, that's a command. Repent, uh, that's obedience, that's a command. Uh, So it's not the first act of obedience, because then you could start to uh, miss that there is a distinction between the act and what the act is pointing to. Uh, but there is a movement of what's supposed to be taking place in that. So first, most basic command of Christ for his church as the first truth regarding baptism. And then it is rooted in past experience of conscious faith. Like I said about John the Baptist, don't be baptized and then repent. Repent and then make that public in the waters of baptism, and that's what happened. And then there was continued teaching that took place after that. But that follows those type of things. His hearers heard his message, felt conviction over their sin, committed before God to turn away from those sins. That's what repentance is, change of heart. And then publicly displayed that repentance by coming to be baptized. And so, like Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12, and uh, other of the narrative accounts of John the Baptist at the early parts of the Gospels, we need to see, like, how did they understand baptism? First century Jews, how did they understand that? Because then the word just kind of continues to use those same ideas to bring us forward when Christ institutes it for his people, for his church. I already mentioned that order and acts, always the gospel's preached, people respond in faith and repentance, and then they are baptized. Um, and no New Testament text alludes to or allows the baptism of anyone who has not consciously professed faith themselves. And an infant cannot consciously profess faith for himself, 
himself or herself. Therefore, they cannot be baptized biblically. And the household texts that are mentioned in Acts, if you look at the word every single time that it's used and you understand those aspects of those stories, the same people in the household who are baptized are the same people who also hear and receive the word. I've got them underlined. I don't have the time to go through it right now. But every single time, like that word, oh, it could have included infants. Sure, the same infants who heard the word and received the word because that's how those households are spoken of. So it's not parents and infants. That's not what that word is trying to communicate in Acts. But if you bring an assumption, which really really is what Presbyterians are, are doing, the, the Pado-Baptist camp, they're bringing an assumption that they think is theologically necessary. I'm not trying to create a straw man, but it's just because of how God works with his people in the Old Testament, it must be so into the New Testament. That, that's, the, that's the flow of argument, and, and I say that's invalid. That I would say that there is a change that takes place and that we need to see that in the, in the book of Acts. We need to see that in the New Testament, but it's not there unless you assume that it's there. Um, that, well, it doesn't forbid it. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't command it. And then we just have two different churches. <laughs> and that's, that's okay, because truth matters, right? Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not angry. Like, Kurt Gray, Barrett Jordan at Redeemer Presbyterian, dear friends of mine, thankful for it every time we get together. We talk about water somehow, uh, how much water, little water. Oh, it's raining outside. You could have baptism. Ha, ha, ha. You know, we just, and Nate Wilkes, you know, do the same sort of thing. We just joke. Like, there's another pastor. It's like, every time we get together, we joke about election, because he's like a raging Arminian and uh, I'm not. Um, raging is strong. But I didn't give you his name anyway, but he'd probably laugh if he were here saying that. Um, baptism is, is for believers, rooted in past experience, the past experience of conscious faith. Always the pattern seen in the New Testament, uh, which as a New Testament believer, as a New Testament church, we feel constrained to practice. Um, how quickly uh, is another question and I don't, time management, not my strong suit. I'm going to skip that. Third point, uh, baptism is an outward physical act portraying an inward spiritual reality. Kind of already covered this, that baptism does not save, does not contribute to our salvation, really it'd be better to say, does not contribute to our justification in any way. A uh, classic example for that, who definitely went to heaven and definitely never got baptized? The thief on the cross, right? Uh, how do we know he definitely went to heaven? Because Jesus said it, right? Best assurance ever. When Jesus said, you're going to heaven with me and it's going to happen quickly. Like, oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Are you, do you know what I've done? Yes, you're literally dying next to me for your sins and I know everything. Um, and it, it didn't rain, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of this, and if baptism is immersion, right, is, he's just like, hey, guys, you got to let me down, <sighs> okay, now, now, uh, so it can't be salvation itself, right, and so there's some who'd be like, oh, that, that, that baptismal regeneration, not just Catholics, uh, but I think that there's some in the Church of Christ, am I correct about that? I think that there's a big emphasis in the Church of Christ that if you aren't baptized, you're not saved. Uh, and that's mixing the sign with the thing that the sign is pointing to. 
It was kind of like, oh, I'm really, really hungry, driving down the road, uh, see that blue sign with that, with that wonderful Wendy's logo on there. And we, we pull over because we're just starving. And we just stand at the sign. Uh, and we're just waiting. We talk to the sign. It's, I, want a, I want a junior cheeseburger. No, I want, a, I want a big bacon cheeseburger, big one. And I never get my food. And it's like, what? It's like, well, that was just a sign. That's not where the food is. That's telling you where the food is. We cannot emphasize enough that baptism does not save. Um, baptism does not justify, does not improve our justification. Justification or, or that, that, um, that first piece of, of our salvation uh, is sola fide, uh, which means by faith alone. Baptism is an expression of faith, not faith itself, so it cannot contribute to um, to our justification. We are, we are made right before God by, through faith in Christ, not plus any work of ours, any work including baptism. The three spiritual realities I already mentioned about baptism, these are the things that when a person is being baptized, um, not just, see, a lot of times we focus on ourselves both at the table and baptism. I think that's sort of the other uh, mistake that we make. I think that's the other wrong emphasis, that we think a lot about us, something that we're doing in obedience to God, rather than uh, this is a gift from God. God is speaking to us in these things. That God is communicating and God is giving us grace. And so a Godward focus on, on the sacraments is one of those reasons why I want to use that. Because this is, is a means of, of God channeling his grace to his people for us to receive by faith. So God is speaking in baptism. It's not just the person saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. It's actually in the waters of baptism, God is telling them something. And in telling them something, he's telling all of us something as well. Believers or unbelievers alike, if we're paying attention. Right? A sign points, are you looking? And, and a seal promises, are you listening to what it's saying, what God is saying in those things? And in the waters of baptism, the spiritual realities that are pictured, uh, first, is union with Christ. This idea of in Christ, a very important phrase throughout the New Testament. Like Romans chapter 6, we are united with Christ in his perfect life, and we are united with him in his death, bearing the wrath of God against our sin, and we're united with him in his resurrection. And if you are not, by faith, united to Jesus in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, then you are not in Christ, you're not a Christian, Uh, you are alone to stand before God in your sin, with no payment, and death, right, to be condemned. But we are, we are united with Christ. Uh, that's, that's a marriage-type language, to where when we were married, you know, everything that was Leanne's became mine, and everything that was mine, there wasn't much, uh, became hers, because we became one, we became united. And so what we bring to that marriage with Christ is sin that he takes on himself. And what he brought to this marriage is his righteousness, which we take on ourselves. We had a debt, he made a payment. We had death, he brought life. We are united with Christ. And baptism pictures this so beautifully uh, because we are united, as it were, physically with that water. 
Submersion, that water gets everywhere. I always, always ask the, the kids, like, where's that water going to get? Man, it's like, if we didn't plug your nose, we'll get in your nose, right? It's, you're going to get soaked. That's, you're submerged fully in that water. And Romans 6 communicates that well. Uh, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. So in the same passage, Paul said, baptized into his death, and then he rephrased it, united with him in his death. Because baptism is speaking with, uh, of our union with Christ. And it pictures that in baptism because we are visibly, physically united to the water when we are baptized. Uh, The second spiritual reality, baptism pictures a cleansing and forgiveness of sins. Um, Acts 2.38, again, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So that either means, you know, it's the act is doing it, and that doesn't align with anything else in the New Testament, or the act is pointing to forgiveness, cleansing forgiveness of your sins. Uh, 1 Peter 3 is another passage that, that links aspects of baptism together with, with the pictures of what God has. Uh, 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it points to the fact that water physically cleanses dirt from the body, uh, obviously not what happens at baptism. We're not in there to actually take a bath. Uh, but it pictures the cleaning of our consciences, the spiritual cleansing that's happened from the guilt of our sin. Uh, union with Christ, cleansing forgiveness, and then adoption. That text, uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, if you caught in your, your text probably offers the same thing. It could be baptized in the name of or into the name of. Because when we're brought, we're united with Christ, we're also, the Father adopts us into his family and we get a new name. We're baptized, we're, we're brought into a family that has a new name, the family name of the Trinity. Brought into the family of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, where you, you are made new, uh, you are adopted into his family. And again, all of those things are not communicated by God in baptism, hoping that they will be the case. It's pointing backward to what has happened and God speaking the blessings that are already yours before you enter into the water of baptism. So that picture is like, do you remember, do you know, child, that you are cleansed from your sin? Baptism speaks of cleansing. Do you know that you are united with Christ? Baptism speaks of that union. Do you know that you are part of my family now in a new life bearing my name? Baptism speaks that reality. So baptism is for believers only. What it communicates, uh, looking backward, just like the table is not Christ will die, but Christ did die. I have feasted on him by faith and received life and nourishment, not I will. And then church membership, that's the first kind of point about that. The second is that church membership is for believers only. Just as uh, only believers are to be baptized, the nature of the church 
this community of believers, this family, this body, to use all of those different analogies that we talked about, uh, the nature of the church itself uh, is a believing community or a regenerate, right, spiritually alive church membership. That's the other kind of baptistic conviction that we have. The old, so when we talk about community, we really talk about a covenant community, covenant by, by God, and really we even speak a covenant to each other on those type of things. But really the, the nature of our relationship with God is that is, is a covenant relationship. And so we see that same type of a covenant relationship in the old covenant community, in, in national Israel. And for them, you were born physically into that old covenant community. It was by natural birth. Abram and then Isaac and then Jacob and his sons and their children, just by birth. Now, participation in the old covenant community did not guarantee salvation. Because no one has ever been saved by being born into the right family. Salvation now and in the future and in the past has always been through what? Faith. Okay, so nobody was ever saved by being born a Jew, right? But they were in this covenant relationship with God. And many Jews had no faith in God. It's obvious as you read the Old Testament and into the New Testament. But then God reveals to Israel that he recognizes that there are um, shortcomings, flaws, insufficiencies with this old covenant. And he's not fixing something that he didn't know was broken. It's not a plan B because plan A didn't work. It's like, well, I'll bring this family together and I'll give them my law and then they will work toward perfection. Oh, that didn't work? Well, let me try something else. Right, that, that really misses the, the storyline, the narrative of Scripture itself. Even Ephesians saying, you know, that Jesus is slain before the foundation of the world. So it's always God's plan, even spoken uh, in the garden, right? Someone's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So in Jeremiah 31, we read very definitively about a new covenant Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In Jeremiah 31, is not just a passage that relates to the Jews and has nothing to do with us as Christians, uh, because the book of Hebrews makes a huge point of quoting this in its entirety uh, and then in parts. In Hebrews chapter 8, where he's talking about Christ superior to everything about the Old Covenant. Uh, I think I mentioned that uh, in a sermon a while ago, right? A better priest offering a better, or a better revelation of God that speaks of a better priest uh, offering a better sacrifice at a better altar or in a better temple 
for his people, right? Fulfilling everything that the old covenant was pointing forward to, bringing it to completion, replacing it. And that's what he says here. And also making the old obsolete. So there is a radical change between God's old covenant relationship with his old covenant people and his new covenant relationship with his new covenant people. There's a change that we're not deciding on for ourselves, but a change that God speaks of. And one of those pieces is that every member of the new covenant community already knows the Lord. Not knows about the Lord, knows the Lord. Right? So in one sense, you'd be like, well, Peter, why do you, you know, stand up there to be like, hey, you need to know the Lord. You, know, you need to know more about the Lord. You need to increase in your relationship with him. But that know the Lord is know him in a faith-saving relationship. And so I don't have to speak to Laura Beth as a member of this church and be like, you need to be saved. Why? Because through faith in Christ, she already is saved. The least of us, it's me, to the greatest... <laughs> right? The poorest to the richest, whoever knows the Lord. That's what that covenant community is. Knowing the Lord, having sins forgiven, having their iniquities already not known by God. Every member of the new covenant community is justified. God does not know their sin anymore. That's the truth that he has proclaimed in Jeremiah 31, and then also quoting that for us in Hebrews chapter 8. God says that there will be differences, or a precise word that we would use in that is a discontinuity. Not, a, not an unbroken line, uh, but there's, there's, there's a sharp contrast. Something changes. It doesn't follow the same trajectory. It radically shifts. And it's not because we want it to be, but it says because God says. In the Old Covenant, they didn't all know me. In the New Covenant, they do all know me. In the Old Covenant... All of their sins were not forgiven. New covenant, all of their sins are forgiven. Um, The law that used to be written on these tablets of stone now is placed on minds, written on hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. This isn't just a conscience that every person has. This is the word of God implanted in our souls. Uh, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save you, James says, that word that is in us, in our hearts, in our minds, not because we have heard it, but because God has put it on us. Who is us? The new covenant community that he spoke of, that he has created. So as a, 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 every participant then in the new covenant, which we just call the church, Every one of us who is a member of this community knows the Lord. That is, they are a believer. And then we see also of a believing church membership uh, throughout the New Testament, which is written to churches. We recognize that, right? Like, that's not an earth-shattering realization. To the saints in Ephesus, to the brothers and sisters in Philippi, right? To the Christians in Colossians, I'm paraphrasing very loosely. Uh, But to all of these, it's like, to the gathered believers— to the saints, to the elect, to all of these, those who are forgiven, right? So he's writing all of these letters to believers in these communities. He still speaks the gospel to them because, like 1 Corinthians 15 says, we need to be reminded of the gospel, not to get saved again, uh, but because of the scary potential 
for false professions. So Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But they weren't welcomed into the church based off of no profession. It wasn't just like, oh, it's okay if in this community there are believers and unbelievers. No, there's an assumption that by their own profession, that they are believers in Christ. But there's a recognition also that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to you. Where it's just like, I don't care if it was 50 years ago that you repented and trusted in Christ. You have a continuing need to repent and trust in Christ right now and tomorrow, and every day until your death. You, you never just get to stop believing and then just coast into heaven. Just like your physical life isn't going to continue if your heart stops beating and you aren't breathing anymore. Like faith and repentance is breathing and your heart beating spiritually. And if that stops, you're dead. And the analogy does fall apart because you can't like mimic death anyway. So the New Testament is written to the saints and to the brothers, to the sisters in those churches, because the members of those churches, those New Covenant communities, and all those different places, they were believers. And the content of those letters is also addressed to believers, assuming that they had already come to Christ by faith. So if Paul had written to the elders and the saints at Risen King Church, he would be addressing a group that he assumed would be believers based off of their profession. Never are one of these letter, letters written to churches written to an unbelieving community. And not a mixed community either, not by design. It may be by reality that there are those who are not believers in our midst, but that's not the nature of this relationship. So they're not part of the new covenant then, but they professed to be far, part of it, and that's as far as we can go. We just receive people's profession and, and evaluate fruit in each other's lives and stir each other on to love and good works as we, the believers, gather together for worship, to grow in our faith, to confess and repent of our sins together, those type of things, right? But God has said the new covenant community will be different. It will be a believing community. And we are that new covenant community now. Second uh, Corinthians, ministry of a new covenant, different than the letter. Paul said, I'm a minister of a new covenant. And then Hebrews makes that point as well. The whole point of that book, right, is the change, the discontinuity between the old and the new. And it goes to Jeremiah because even the very makeup of the community is different. So the church is believers. So we do not, so like just for example, like um, James and Lily, members of our family, uh, we, we, we use family loosely here as well. We could say it specifically. We can say it loosely. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Uh, but we do. Uh, we believe that you guys are family to them because you love us, you love them, and we're thankful for that. Uh, but they are not members of our church uh, because they have not professed faith in Christ. They have not expressed that faith in baptism. They aren't members here. As I have no confidence that they're Christians. And so since they're not Christians, they're not members of this. Uh, but you know, two, of, two of our girls, so like Elise or Julia, for example, right, have made professions of faith. They have been baptized. They are members of our church not just because I'm a member. They aren't just an attender. They're a member. They're part of this covenant community through the, their faith in Christ professed publicly in the waters of baptism. So those are our baptistic convictions, 
No time for questions. You're welcome. Um, hopefully I made that point clearly. And obviously, I mean, this is the end of the debate, right? Nobody could possibly disagree with any of these things. And so it's just totally mic drop. And I'm going to send this tape to my friends at Redeemer. And then it'll be Redeemer Baptist Church by next week because I've just answered all of the concerns, right? Uh, not so vain, foolish, or arrogant to think that that's the case. Um, I want them to be fully convinced in their minds of their practice and theology. I do. Uh, I just think that they're wrong. And uh, they, I know they want me to be fully convinced of the practice that we have here. And they also think that I'm wrong on those things. Uh, but we agree that Jesus is the only way of salvation, right? That only through faith in him, entirely apart from works, can anyone stand right before God. So we are brothers. We are sisters. And we're thankful for that, right? But you know, there's that whole like, oh, I wish there weren't so many denominations. Have you heard that? Maybe you've said that. Why couldn't we just all be one church? Well, let's just think about those two things there right? So it's like, absolutely. It'd be great. I have so many good friends uh, at Redeemer. I would love to worship with them, serve with them on a weekly basis. Uh, so who should we baptize? It's like, because if they'll just admit that they're wrong, they can become part of our church. We can do it our way. And they'll be like, well, that sounds great, except let's flip that. It's like, if you would just stop being so dogmatic about that one side of things and recognize like, this is what God has commanded in his word, we should do that. So if we just stop what we think is right, just do it their way, or if they just stop what they think is right, just do it our way, then yeah, we only need one church. That's fine. Um, but I'm convinced according to God's word, baptism for believers only, membership for believers only. And they're convinced that, that God's plan is something different than that, right? That the nature of the covenant community is different. And so it's like we could be here uh, at odds with each other every single week, right? Fight every time somebody, a baby is born, or, right? It's kind of like, oh, we got to baptize them. We can't baptize them. It's like my conscience would absolutely not allow that. Like I cannot be part of a gathering that does that because I think it's disobedience. And so instead we have two churches, both proclaiming the gospel and disagreeing on something that is not primary, but is a very important secondary event. A primary thing is, is a gospel affirming, gospel denying truth. And then secondary matters of practice where we just can't be unified on those type of things. We can't coexist in the same church. We will coexist for eternity uh, when God corrects them. But, or vice versa, right? I'm going to get that in there. Um, denominations and differences among churches is valuable and helpful because truth matters. And we can't just water down everything to a common denominator uh, because we need to believe God's word deeply. Right? And then and if our practice, sola scriptura, according to that. And that's what we think we are doing with baptism for believers and a believing or regenerate church membership. And that's what our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are doing according to scripture when they have different practices than us. And we both think that we're wrong. And that's okay. All right. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by church attendance. We're not saved by right uh, theology to every nuance. We're saved through faith in Christ. Childlike faith. I am a sinner deserving damnation. Jesus, the perfect son of God, lived a righteous life in my place. He died for me. I do not have to pay my debt before you. It's already been paid. He rose from the dead. I will rise from the dead. We will be together forever as members of your family. Thank you for those truths. May we celebrate those gratefully and worshipfully. 
uh, as we come to our gathering together. Amen.